0: I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. On the screen, a, uh, a new aspect of the Long Now website, which is uh, discussion. And there's discussion of tonight's talk on there, discussion of all the previous three years of talks, discussion on other subjects, and uh, you are most welcome to join those discussions. They're basically an extension of what we'll be doing here tonight. Uh, so that's at longnow.org, and then you'll find the discussion part, go straight there. Uh, Many of you are familiar with the deal with these question cards, uh, which are making the introductions easy on one side. And then on the other is, uh, at any time during uh, evening's events, you want to write down a question. Um, It's good to put your name on it, because then we'll call you out and the speaker can look for you. Uh, If you haven't gotten on our mailing list and want to put your email address on there, uh, you're welcome to do that. And then pass it out to one of the yellow-hatted characters, who will bring them up to Kevin Kelly right here. Who will pick the juiciest ones and pass them up to me? Um, let's bring out our speakers Peter Schwartz and Ralph Cavana. The format is not a debate. Um, that is, it's not going to be a deal where you are. Anybody, but I guess your innermost thoughts, decides who won and who lost. You do get to choose who goes first. We'll get to that in a minute. The format is as follows uh, whoever goes first will uh, stand up and hold forth on their topic and their point of view for 15 minutes. And we'll be pretty strict about that 15 minutes so that uh, we're even. Um, then the second speaker in interview mode, draws that person out even more on uh, on their point of view. And then the second speaker has the job of summarizing the first speaker's viewpoint to the satisfaction of the first speaker, who has to say, that's right, you got it. I can't believe it, but you got it. And then the reverse rolls, and it goes the other way. Is that clear? Uh, at that point, um, We'll be collecting your questions and we'll start to get into uh, more interaction completely here. Now, first we decide who goes first. This will be a show of hands. Um, you're welcome to shout if you want to. It won't make any difference. We're just looking at hands. And um, uh, how many want Ralph Cavana to go first? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Put your hands down. How many want Peter Schwartz to go first? What can I Interesting. say? Interesting. What is this telling us? <laughs> okay, let me uh, let me just say a little bit about, well, Schwartz is collecting his thoughts. Now that he realizes he's not in the riposte mode. Um, Schwartz is, uh, well, he was at Royal Dutch Shell for five years, so he's got oil company experience. Uh, he speaks uh, richly with people in government all over the world, in corporations all over the world, nonprofit corporations, foundations as well. But I will uh, tell you what most introducers don't, don't do, which is that he was SDS uh, when he was a student at yeah, so Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Then he was a volunteer in the Peace Corps. And I first met him at an Earth Day kind of event uh, that he helped organize at UC Davis. Uh, he has green credentials. He was on the board of uh, Rocky Mountain Institute and is a longtime friend of Amory Lovins. And he has been in the thick of energy for basically his whole career. Uh, Ralph Kavana, who will go second, uh, is from Yale, trained as a lawyer there and is uh, the energy specialist with the Natural Resources Defense Council, which, for many of us, is the most respected environmental organization going. Um, It bases what it does on real science, on real technology, and it really knows how to make politics work. And it's it's a real honor to have him here tonight as well. Uh, These two know each other, and they know each other's strong points and weak points, and they... (laughs) go on collaborating and competing in future. So this is part of an ongoing story, starting with Peter Schwartz.
1: Thank you, Stuart. And, and I want to thank Long Now, my colleagues, and especially Ralph, uh, who is, as, as Stuart said, an, an old friend. Uh, and and I, I must say, I want to thank all of you. I'm astonished. I thought maybe 12 people might show up tonight uh, and I know many of you along now regulars and so I'm very pleased that you've all chosen to come and join us this evening um, because I think it's a very, very, very important issue that we're talking about here uh, and uh, Ralph and I have been on the same side on many, many issues over many years and we'll be again on other issues but on this one I think we have some disagreements and I think that's what we're here to talk about because I think the reason we need to use nuclear power is that the risks of really nasty climate change much sooner than we think is much greater than is widely believed, and that that climate change is at least in part driven by our rising use of fossil fuels, and especially coal and oil, and that that in turn is being driven by rapidly growing developing countries, especially countries like China. So in my view, we need every alternative to coal and oil, and we can't afford to leave off the table anything, particularly since the risks are that, are, if nuclear power in particular are likely to fall. So the risks of climate change are very great, and the risks of nuclear power are declining. So that's the, 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 the fundamental position. Now, before I get into the climate change part of the story, there's one small piece of the story that is worth spending at least one minute on, but I suspect Ralph and I will agree on this and are not going to spend much time on this, and that's the oil issue. Because, of course, oil is another source of, uh, hydrocar- uh, of uh, CO2, uh, but, in fact, I think this issue is going to be pretty much taken care of by itself because over the next 50 years we're going to run out or we're going to hit the peak and it's going to go down. The pessimists think the peak is now, the optimists think it's maybe 30, to 40 years in the future. I, I count myself as one of those. But in any event, we're going to have to make a transition away from oil over the next half century, no matter what, uh, irrespective of what our issues are about climate change or anything else. And furthermore, that as we begin to feel the pressures of that running out, the price of oil is likely to go up, so we'll have the benefit of rising prices to force us to change our behavior, even if we're not smart enough to do so on our own. So. By and large we 're going to move away from oil as a transport fuel we 've already done it in electricity, but there is a further implication for climate change because this is where it leads us next is that in fact, many of the alternatives to oil involve electricity in one way or another that is, we may use electricity to charge batteries on cars, though I think that 's less likely more likely is we 'll use electricity to produce hydrogen, which we 'll use as a transport fuel, and that may require a great deal of electricity so The shift away from oil is also likely to increase the amount of electricity that we use, and we're going to have to make the shift away from oil in any event. The real issue here is electricity. And the real issue behind it, the thing that we are most concerned about, is climate change. And the conventional wisdom on climate change is that basically what we have is a situation of partly natural but mostly human-induced, mostly by the use of fossil fuels, we are seeing a gradual rise in the temperature of the earth and that this will take place over the next several centuries and will rise maybe three, four, five degrees a century. And we're not going to like the consequences, especially if you live in the Maldives or Bangladesh, places like that which will progressively disappear under rising seas. Now, that could happen. Uh, that's possible. But I think there's a much worse scenario that we face and a far more likely scenario and that the science and the evidence is pointing us in that direction. And you get a hint of it by looking backwards. And that is that what we face is the possibility not of several centuries of gradual global warming, but abrupt climate change. That is, rapid changes in our climate, as we've experienced many times in the past, changes of five, ten degrees over the course of a decade, not centuries, and that it could become very volatile, and that that warming, in fact, oddly enough, could trigger cooling. And without going into all the mechanisms by which that happens, gradually as the Earth warms, you see what's already beginning to happen, polar ice melting, glaciers melting, and so on, fresh water flowing into the North Atlantic affecting the currents that move huge amounts of heat around the Earth and that gradually produce the temperate climates that we all experience in the upper parts of uh, the Earth, the northern latitudes. Uh, If... The earth warms rapidly. One of the results is that we could see the earth cool as has happened many times before. And in fact, the greatest risk we face is not merely gradual climate change, but a return to the normal climate of the earth. And that's what this is showing us. What you see here, uh, there we go. This is the last 10,000 years of human history, all of human civilization. We could, in fact, settle down when the Earth's climate stabilized. We could have agriculture, we could have uh, the uh, uh, development of cities and so on. All of that took place in the last 10,000 years after really serious global warming. By the way, you can see this is about 20 degrees centigrade here, so it's a lot of movement. This is the normal climate of the Earth, very volatile and much colder. The risk that we face by rapidly rising CO2 production in the atmosphere is not a warmer Earth. It is a return to the normal climate of the Earth, an end to what we call the interglacial, these 10,000-year periods that happen every quarter million to half a million years of relative stability. The risk that we face is that if this happens, we face a very dire prospect. And that dire prospect is very simple. This can support 8 billion people. This may be two. Six are going to have to get off the planet and the way they get off the planet is war. This is a recipe for war, and that's what I'm most concerned about, is that if we fail to deal adequately with the abrupt climate change challenge, we will find ourselves in a rapidly declining carrying capacity of the planet and the inability to support the people of the earth. Uh, Now, we did a lot of work on this for the Pentagon a couple of years ago, and what we could see then was the evidence that this was increasingly coming true. We were already seeing freshening of the North Atlantic. We were already beginning to see some of the fluctuations in the current. We were seeing it in the climate history. We've even seen some recent indications in the last year offshore California. The absence of a salmon season most of the year was due to the lack of an upwelling uh, from the Pacific, change in the currents there. These are the conditions and early signs of an abrupt shift. And it is not guaranteed. It's a risk. It could be wrong. But the risk is rising that that is what we face. So I believe that, in fact, the real risk here is that our civilization is at risk. This is not simply a small matter of a few countries and a shift in the agricultural pattern of the world. This is our very civilization that is at risk here. Uh, So what's driving this climate change? And is there anything we can do about it? I mean, some of it is natural, probably, but most of the evidence suggests that it is, in fact, human activity that is producing the particularly rapid change that we're experiencing now and particularly the fossil fuels that we're burning, putting CO2 in the atmosphere. And, in fact, having now talked before about oil and transportation fuels and so on and suggesting that some of those are going to become part of electricity, the story really is electricity. It's how are we going to produce the electricity that we need around the world to light our homes, heat our homes, drive our factories, and ultimately probably even drive our cars, without producing vast amounts more of CO2. So it comes down to energy. And in fact, how do we produce our electricity? It's more about coal and oil um, and getting rid of that. And most of that is being driven by the developing world. That is, today's level of CO2 output we produced. But most of the growth yet to come is to come from the developing countries. And you can see it in this graph here. This is the growth in energy demand over the next 50 years. Starting back here in the 1920s and the 30s, what you saw was energy energy production was about a quarter of today, but it was mostly coal, very heavily coal. Over the last sort of 50 years, we've quadrupled our energy use. We've added oil, natural gas, a lot of big hydro, and a bit of nuclear power to that. If we are very efficient, we'll only double our use of energy in the next 50 years. But if we continue the way we're going right now, we'll again quadruple it. Now, we'll add a lot of renewables, like wind and solar, but that's a lot of energy to supply. And the blue is the rich countries, what we call the OECD. The yellow are the developing countries, China, India, everybody else. And as you can see, most of the growth is to come in those places as the next 2 billion people get rich. One of the great achievements of the last decade and a half is about a billion people climbed out of poverty in places like China and India. And if we're lucky, in the next 50 years, another 2 billion will. That can't be a bad thing. That can't be a bad thing for those people to climb out of poverty. But if they all live the way we do, we're in deep trouble. So where's all that electricity produced? It's produced by coal today. And here's what would happen in about 30 years if we don't do something. Lots more coal, not much more oil, a lot more gas. Uh, This is the challenge. And look, that shows a lot more renewables even there, many-fold increase. The issue is the CO2, so this is the emissions from the different fuels, and what you see is a steady increase from coal, steady increase from oil, we're going to shift some of that to coal, and even some more from natural gas. The challenge here is how do we get rid of this particularly? This will begin to get rid of it by itself, and this is the cleanest of the fuels. The challenge we see is in China, there we go, China's energy demand is set to grow again from about 47 quadrillion BTUs to about 140. It'll triple if it keeps going the way it is. The challenge is to get it down here, to improve its energy intensity, its energy efficiency, and, by the way, about what the United States did between 1975 and 85. So it's not impossible. The problem is that most of it's going to come from coal. So what are they going to do to get rid of that coal? And the coal is really nasty coal in China. It's brown, soft coal. Uh, Skip that one. Now, looking at where the energy is coming from today, this is electricity. And what you see, these are all the different ways you make electricity. Coal, the largest. This is renewables, of which most of it is hydro. And if you unpack that other 1%, most of that is geothermal. Uh, solar and wind is a tiny, invisible fraction today. We need to increase it enormously, but it is tiny today. So our technology options are cleaning up coal, renewables, nuclear, hydrogen, and efficiency. The point is that economics will determine some of it, and gradually most of it's going to get more expensive. These are the capital costs of it. We're going to have to do basically all of them. And one way to think about it is what you call stabilization wedges. This comes from Rob Sokolow at Princeton. And basically, this is the line of CO2 if we don't do anything. That's what we need to do, cut it. And each of these you can think of as a wedge to reduce it. So if you wanted to do it with wind, it would take two million one megawatt turbines. If you want to do it with solar, it'll take 2,000 gigawatts, 700 times current capacity. If you want to do it with nuclear, you need to do 2 times current capacity. That's the issue here. How much you have to do if you really want to get rid of that and begin to lower it. Does it work? Well, here's what the situation is in France versus the world. The world, for... This GDP, that output, produces about a half a kilogram of CD, CO2 per every dollar of GDP, using 16% of nuclear for producing electricity. France, which is 78%, produces half as much CO2. So it makes a difference. It adds up. It cuts it in half already. So what's the issue with nuclear? Well, there are four issues. Economics, safety, waste, and proliferation. And the answer to all four is new technology. We've learned a lot over the last 30 years about nuclear. We've made a lot of mistakes along the way. The technology we've had has been costly. Some of it is less safe than it ought to be, and we haven't had a good solution to the waste problem. All of it is now accessible. We can see new generations of reactors, which are both cheaper and much safer and likely to be constructed much faster. So there are a variety of new technologies coming of that sort, and critically, what we see is a new fuel cycle, a fuel cycle that is recycling the fuel we're one of the only major nuclear countries that does not recycle our fuel so we waste most of our fuel we only use 5% of it improved recycling leads you to 6% but the new pyrometallurgical ones lead you to 94% of the fuel being used much greater efficiency and the important thing is in the current cycle you produce plutonium and lots of high level waste that we want to stick into unfortunate places like Yucca Mountain that won't work The the plutonium recycling has much of the same problem with waste and plutonium processing. But the new pyrometallurgical processes, no waste, or very little waste, and no plutonium produced. So the net result is safer, cheaper, no waste, no plutonium problem, and you radically reduce the CO2 and begin to address the climate change problem. Thank you very much.
0: Ralph, you have 10 minutes to draw Peter out, and you can use that to uh, get in whatever points you were (laughs) trying to get. Stuart,
2: uh, I know that everyone in the audience wants me to open with the same question, Mm -hmm. and it goes right to your introduction. And, Peter, what we all want to know is, was there really an SDS chapter at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute? And if so, how many people were in it besides you?
1: Actually, one of them may even be here. Is that Pete Rotondo in the audience? Another mutual friend
2: of ours. I think he was actually in the chapter. And me and Pete and one other guy. I want (laughs) uh, Very good. I want to give you a chance to talk a little more about some issues you had to flash through very quickly at the end. For many in this audience, uh, concerns about nuclear begin with the issue of proliferation and the fact that, as our mutual friend Amory Lovins likes to say, a civilian nuclear industry is among the best possible camouflages for an illicit weapons program. Uh, You are talking about, to make a material difference, as you've acknowledged, you suggested that we would need at least 700 more nuclear reactors worldwide. We now have about 400, many presumably in places with less than fully stable and effective governments. Talk a little bit about your view as to why we shouldn't worry about that as much as many of us do. I I think we should worry about it. I think it's a real issue.
1: So let me say that I think it's not a done deal. It's, uh, It's a very real issue. We see it today with Iran. It's a perfect example of what's going on. It's happened with North Korea. So it's a real issue. It's a real concern. I think part of it has to do with the actual technology of the fuel cycle that we use, and part of it has to do with the institutional mechanisms that manage that fuel cycle. So the current fuel cycles are particularly vulnerable to proliferation issues because of the ways in which they produce the fuel, i.e., we end up with a fair amount of plutonium in that process, as well as we end up with some nasty wastes that can be played with in unfortunate ways. So part of it involves shifting the nature of the technology of how we process the fuels. Today in the United States, as you know, we don't reprocess at all. Most of the nuclear countries do, but even their technology, I think, is still not really a very economic and still produces a fair amount of waste. So we need to move beyond that technology. The last two week, two issues ago in Scientific American, there was a very good article, which I could recommend to all of you, on essentially the newer processes, pyrometallurgical processes that basically enable you to do several things, first of all, to capture more of the energy value of the fuel. Secondly, radically reduce the amount of high-level waste so that you end up with, you still have some waste, but it's fairly low-level waste. You don't need to isolate for thousands of years. And third, you end up with no plutonium in the process, so radically reduce it. However, you don't get to that for decades. So we have a problem just running the existing system the way we have it and the current plans for development. So we need institutional mechanisms, probably under the I A I. Aea, the International Agency for Atomic Energy that manages uh, uh, the the issues of proliferation uh, to actually help manage the fuel cycle so you don't have closed closed fuel cycles in any of the countries that you are concerned about, i.e. where they can capture potentially the harmful products that they could use in weapons. So we're
2: going to need much stronger, much more effective international institutions than we have now. Absolutely. A wholly different kind of reactor, a wholly different kind of waste management and waste disposal system. That's right. Uh, On that point, uh, as you know, an Achilles heel of nuclear today and one of the things that makes it difficult to move forward as a practical matter is the political challenge of convincing any particular jurisdiction, and this is a worldwide problem, uh, that accepting waste that at least on the face of it looks like a 100,000-year problem is a sensible proposition from the standpoint of local land use management. How would you uh, propose to help them overcome those understandable skepticisms? Well, first of all, I think
1: we've, we've we've defined the waste problem wrong. That is, the problem of nuclear waste is not a problem of storage for 10,000 years or a million years or a quarter million years or any uh, such very long period of time. The issue is storing it long enough that we can put it in a form that we can reprocess it and recycle it. And that is probably surface storage in very strong caskets uh, in relatively uh, few sites, not large numbers of sites, i.e. not at every reactor, but also not one single national repository, probably several, and a number around the world, with it in the mind that you are not putting it in the ground forever, where it, or in theory forever, where it could migrate and leak and raise all the kinds of concerns that people rightly have about waste. So you're redesigning the way in which you manage that waste and change the nature of
2: the challenge fundamentally, I think. Okay. Peter, on, on the issue of how, how this comes to pass, where the, where the 700 reactors come from, would you use government mandates to get it? Would you, I mean, talk about how it would ha- As you know, basically the way reactors come into being in the world today is that somebody has to buy them. Normally that's the electric company. Normally there's a competitive process. I'm not aware of any competitive procurement process any electric utilities ever run in the world open to all sources where a nuclear plant won. <laughs> so what, what's going to change that? Well, look, uh, first of all, the truth is that in most countries uh, the
1: decision about power plants are not a private decision. They are, in fact, a public decision. They are, in fact, most countries, with the exception of a relatively few wealthy countries, most of it is public utilities. So it is, in fact, a governmental decision in most places. Now, the truth is most countries are not going to build nuclear power plants. So it really is, we're really talking about 30 or 40 of the relatively larger countries that are involved. not I doubt that we're going to have a, a nuclear power plant in Guiano-Bissau. Uh, You know, some of the larger countries are are likely to have it, Kazakhstan and so on. And there's an example of a country where you could imagine problems or some of the other stands. Uh, I think it is very likely that what we'll see is, first of all, most of the plants that we're going to build in the next, let me say, 20 to 30 years will be at existing sites. So we're not going to be confronting the necessity of building The further plants that we need, the next 150, 200 plants that we need until probably another 30, 40, 50 years in the future until we've exhausted all the sites where we can build at the existing sites. In the United States alone, for example, we have probably 30 to 40 sites which were designed for three and four reactors that only have one or two.
2: But is it your view that government should make these decisions, or would you prefer a more competitive and entrepreneurial process like every other issue I've ever heard you talk about? And the answer
1: is yes. I would much prefer that
2: in the market-oriented economies there'd be market competition, no question. Winners and losers emerge on the merits. Absolutely. And if the nuclear plants can't make it... then They don't make it. Understood. And that's what I... If you... It, 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 Stuart, I don't... You interrupt me whenever I'm supposed to restate his position compellingly. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> you have four more minutes to quiz and then you uh, do that. Uh,
2: because, Peter, what, what... As I... At the heart of your concern, I, I, I suspect you have this whole audience with you on the seriousness of the climate challenge and on the importance of doing everything we can to end this suicidally irresponsible experiment we're all conducting with the Earth's atmosphere. You believe strongly... I take it. One of your one of your graphs shows is that even you take. I know you take energy efficiency seriously. And the colloquy I want you and I to have for just a moment is to recognize that energy efficiency is a resource just like a power plant. Absolutely. That you would like to see as much of it exploited as is available and is uh, at, at, at reliability and other. We don't standards. make it if we don't do it. I mean, you,
1: you can't. What do you on the think that side. if
2: the world takes advantage of all accessible and cost-effective efficiency, its energy needs will still double by 2050? On uh, on that order of magnitude, because of the numbers of people.
1: Well, total energy is another question. Electricity demand. Electricity demand. Uh, Electricity demand. Because in part of also the shift away from oil to electricity as a source for transport fuels.
2: But if you turned out to be wrong about that, if the potential for efficiency were greater, if the potential for inexpensive renewables were greater, if the competitive process yielded a different set of winners and nuclear didn't make it, I don't sense great distress no, on your part. of course not. There's no other reason to pursue it in your mind aside from its potential contribution to dealing with the risks of climate change. Well,
1: if it were cheaper, if it turned out to be, and it could, then that would be another reason, i.e. there would be economic benefit to consumers from that. So... Given the relative cost, I mean, for example, coal, uh, uh, carbon capture and sequestration could turn out to be very expensive, just to take an example.
2: But, but I guess what I want to press you on, sure, and if it were cheap and if it were safe and if there were no proliferation problems, I think the audience would rise as one and embrace it. <laughs> but but uh, it has nuc- I want to press you again. Are you aware of any case where a nuclear plant in, in a genuinely open competition against those other alternatives we've been talking about has ever prevailed? Well, it depends what you mean by an open competition and prevailed. So I'll, it, I'll take the give me the best illustration. The answer is
1: you're basically right. It is it has been driven by the government. So there's no point in, in fact, trying to play otherwise. That is, in fact, what has been happening, okay. that, that it has been driven by policy. And, and certainly that has been the case until now. There's no question.
2: And I think, Stuart, then the one other thing I'd like to ask uh, Peter, if I may, is you you were focusing on France as an interesting example of a jurisdiction with relatively low carbon dioxide emissions and uh, presenting a different profile from the world on average. Right. You ever. Looked at another interesting jurisdiction, state of California. Ah, yeah, so so at least perhaps an interesting counterexample we could flesh out for yeah, the, be in interesting. The discussion. To look yeah.
0: at what the the numbers are here in California. All right, but I think we're getting to the point of you uh, are about to pretend to be Peter Schwartz. I'm Peter Schwartz.
2: <coughs> All right, uh, so as Peter Schwartz, and it's a pleasure to take on this persona and an honor. Uh, <laughs> Look, uh, th- th- we, we uh, are participating collectively, humanity, in a suicidally dangerous experiment with the climate. We are driving up concentrations of greenhouse gas, gases in the atmosphere at uh, historically unprecedented levels. I think the only thing I would have added to what Peter said was, as far as I know, the current levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere are at their highest point in the last 400,000 years, maybe the last 25 million. Uh, There is ample ground for believing strongly that we ought to do everything we can to to end this dangerous experiment if we can find a way to do it at reasonable cost. And Peter believes that that nuclear power, with all of the constraints and problems that it has had historically based on existing technology, uh, can essentially change its spots, uh, can make a significant and meaningful contribution to stabilizing the atmosphere uh, by dramatically improving its performance in terms of cost-effectiveness, the uh, proliferation uh, resistance of the fuel cycle, uh, and the uh, waste disposal problem, which he thinks can be solved by fundamentally changing the political calculation away from an effort to dispose of wastes for geologic eras uh, into a more plausible uh, short-term approach based on better technology for capturing the wastes. As a consequence, he asks you to keep nuclear power on the table. I think it's a fair summary.
0: Good. All right. Well done. Thank you. Now, I'll ask each member of the audience to do this. (laughs) (laughs) Stuart? You're on.
2: So at the outset, I need to acknowledge that I have, since 1979, had the best job in the entire environmental community. I'm the energy program co-director for the Natural Resources Defense Council, uh, which bills itself as a national environmental organization. But let's be serious. Two of the four offices are in California. A fifth of the membership is in California. I think that I have heard from a good fraction of it in the last two weeks giving me advice on exactly what to do this evening. (laughs) Not all of it consistent. Uh, I I thought the best suggestion was that I should remind Peter that solar power is a nuclear fuel and if he will just expand his definition a little, (laughs) he'll he'll bring the audience along with Let me explain, I I have, it's my belief, and and what I'm going to describe is fundamentally an optimistic vision, which is I think actually very much like Peter's was. I don't think nuclear power is going to figure in your future. Uh, Not because I'm afraid of it, but because I think there are much better alternatives available. Actually, I am a little bit afraid of it, and I'll get to that in a moment. But but, uh, I believe we can and will do better. And I actually think the state of California is a wonderful proving ground for doing better, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about that. Uh, let me uh, give you a sense of my, uh, of my skepticism. By the way, without in any way, as I said, I accept Peter's statement of the problem. I, think the, I take the climate change every challenge every bit as seriously as he does, and I think he set it out about right. We've got to think about the global challenge. I'd put it this way. I think what we have to do is we have to wean the world from fossil fuels over the next uh, century. Peter ended a memorable article by reminding you all that the Stone Age didn't end when the world ran out of stones, and that's not an impossible proposition, and we've been through things like this before. And so over the next 50 years, my view is that we, and I think this is broadly consistent with where a number of our climate scientists are, we've got to try and stabilize global emissions and we've got to try to cut U.S. emissions roughly in half. And I don't minimize the difficulty of doing that for one instant. It's a formidable challenge. And many people who look at that challenge come to the conclusion that Peter does that, gee, we need everything. We need to do everything we could possibly, we need all the efficiency, all the renewables, all the coal, all the nuclear. We do the coal, we have to pump the carbon underground. We have to do everything. This I would describe as the working philosophy of the United States Congress on every energy policy issue of consequence over the last 50 years. We have to do everything. There is, I would submit to all of you, an alternative way of thinking about this in a world with limited resources. And that is to say, rather than letting government pick the winners and losers on the merits, which is an idea that in every other context would cause the the Peter that I know to recoil in horror, Rather than do that here, we ought to be moving toward a paradigm which is much more comfortable to the Peter Schwartz I know, which is that what we ought to be setting up is a, what we ought to be having government do is establish the limits, the pollution limits. We ought to be having government say, look, even as we've done with other major pollutants, we're gonna limit the amount of greenhouse gases that get emitted, and then we're gonna let the winners and losers emerge on the merits, depending on what the least costly ways are of achieving that objective. That is an approach we have pursued in other contexts. I would submit it's the approach we should pursue here. And I want to give you my reasons for thinking that if we do, nuclear is unlikely to be among the winners. Now, first of all, I hope this is a kind of disarmingly reasonable proposition. If you take this stuff seriously, the answer surely isn't to have the government decide what technologies to deploy, which hasn't worked tremendously well in many sectors. It's to have the government do what it does best, which is set reasonable regulatory constraints and limits, and then let the entrepreneurial genius that Peter Schwartz exemplifies as well as anybody I know figure out what to do. Now, if you do that, here's why I'm skeptical that nuclear emerges among the winners. I'm going to wish away several problems. I'm going to assume that there are no operational safety issues. I'm going to assume that there are no problems associated with potential terrorist attacks or sabotage on relatively vulnerable spent fuel pools, although I worry, as many of you do, that that's certainly a temptation out there that gets bigger as you have more and more reactors. But remember, Peter has directed you to imagine a better reactor, so that's fine. I'm going to wish that away, too. Uh, I still think we end up with three big problems as we envision a very substantial expansion of nuclear. Uh, The first is that in order to get to Peter's world of better reactors, you've somehow got to get the existing world of existing reactors. You've got to get it past the waste problem. And the waste proposition really has proved, in 1984, the United States Congress passed legislation to force the state of Nevada to accept nuclear waste by the year 1998, which seemed like a straightforward proposition, it's a small state, relatively powerless, all of the rest of us want to do this. There's 14 years. Let's get this done for heaven's sake and move on. It's 2006. We are nowhere close to doing that. Now, I think Peter is right to say let's change the, let's change the value proposition here. Instead of getting highly toxic waste for several hundred thousand years, uh, instead you'll be accepting waste for a mere century or so in large concrete casks. But even Peter Schwartz is going to have a tough time selling that to the skeptical jurisdictions that are going to believe in their heart of hearts that maybe just maybe nobody's going to want those casks after the first century, and they're going to be stuck with them indefinitely, or as is the case with the existing reactors, maybe the waste just stays on the existing sites and piles up. I don't think this is the worst problem that nuclear power has, but it is a formidable political challenge that nobody's figured out how to overcome. But let's assume Peter overcomes it, and we deal with that, and Yucca Mountain fills to the brim with the wastes of the existing reactors, and everybody forgets about this issue when we go forward. It still seems to me that there are two formidable problems, and I was trying to begin to tease them out as we were talking together. The first has to do with this issue of the linkage between nuclear power and nuclear bombs, which is impossible for any of us to escape since any of us who is watching the daily coverage of events in Iran uh, and North Korea can see it. I mean, Iran and North Korea's fundamental argument to the rest of the world is what weapons? We're just building nuclear reactors, just like the United States. This is civilian power. What's the problem? We're just doing what all the rest of you are doing. And the problem, of course, as everybody who is involved in this recognizes, is the deceptive ease with which those civilian programs become cover for illicit activity. Very hard to police. There's no question, I think, that we'd have a safer world in terms of long-term nuclear proliferation issues if there were no civilian nuclear industries for the weapons masters to hide behind. And one of the reasons to look forward to a nuclear-free era, if we can get to it, is that civilian cover will be gone. But here is the final reason why I think, and and, and the most important, why I doubt that nuclear will figure in your future. And it has to do with the fundamental self-confidence that I want all of you to feel about the competition that I suspect many of you uh, value above the nuclear option in terms of where you want to see the world's energy future go. The energy efficiency options, the renew... I mean, to have energy efficiency and renewable energy appear as two items on a list is for any of you who know the diversity of these technologies and options, of course, very misleading and constraining. We're talking about literally thousands of options. We're talking about the ability to create portfolios co- co- combined both out of efficiency, a whole host of renewable electric generation, the biofuels options that we haven't even started to talk about yet this evening. All I am seeking in my advocacy and what I'm trying to accomplish is an equal opportunity for them to compete against the nuclear plants and the other options. I I am a little bit amused when when the issue arises, should nuclear power be on the table or not? Nuclear power has been on the table for my entire life, which has spanned most of the life cycle. It's never been off the table. It has an army of lobbyists in Washington with funding at least 100 times those of every anti-nuclear activist in the country. It has 100 100 plus operating reactors in the U.S., each with 1,000 plus employees. It has university centers across the country. It has a whole army of uh, committee chairs in the Congress supporting it aggressively it has freedom for, it has complete protection or largely complete protection against accident liability it has subsidies for licensing subsidies for siting operating subsidies loan guarantees for the next generation of plant i think peter would be hard pressed to think of anything else one could do right now to put nuclear even more firmly on the table and yet this is the extraordinary thing not one nuclear plant has been ordered and completed since 1973 I suspect, before the, before the births of many in this room. And that is because, at least in this country, nuclear has time and time again failed fundamental competitive tests. And this is, I think, the fundamental reason for my confidence that better options will prevail, is that I expect the future to be a reprise of those competitive tests. Now, the competitive tests in the future, I think Peter's right, they'll be carbon constrained. That is, you'll get points if you have low, relatively low carbon dioxide emissions, and nuclear will get some points. Nuclear's been getting points all its life. It still can't win. Giving it a few more is unlikely to change the outcome, particularly since the same kinds of options, the same I mean, the, the options with equally appealing uh, low-carbon characteristics will be getting the same benefit in those competitive uh, contexts. So what you're going to see, and you'll see it first in California, as California moves as it already has toward constraints on carbon emissions the governor has set aggressive targets to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. I know Peter and I celebrate that first move. Now he's got to act on it. Likeliest way he acts on it is, and it's already starting to happen, you begin to put your thumb on the scale. You begin to say, we want to develop our electric options with an eye toward minimizing carbon emissions. Today, in a historic moment, which I suspect not many of you have heard about yet, so I want to make sure you're aware of it, California PUC has proposed to limit the total carbon emissions associated with the resource purchases of the state's major utilities. And and that process, as it gets underway, and yes, absolutely... That's worth worth a moment. I'm going to ask, I'm going to commemorate something else in just a moment to when I close that's even more important. But what that reminds us is that we are moving into a carbon-constrained era, but think about what that has meant in recent years for California. Uh, We've already started to do it. Did you know, for example, that when California utilities evaluate energy efficiency against renewables, against coal, against nuclear, they are required to assign a penalty, a cost penalty to resources that emit carbon dioxide, so nuclear is already getting a thumb on the scale in California. hasn't made a noticeable difference yet. What has happened is that we've launched the world's largest energy efficiency and renewable energy investment programs. And that is frankly what I think, and, and here's, here's where I sometimes get into trouble, but I want to bring you this far with me. I think Peter's right on one point. I think nuclear gets to compete. I don't think we can say we, we want low carbon auctions, we want a fair competitive, we want to go after all the cost effective efficiency, all the renewables, and we're just going to rule nuclear out of that competition. They can't possibly make a showing. We're, it makes us sound like we're scared of the nuclear option. It makes it sound like we think maybe there's something good out there that might beat our stuff, so we want to keep it away. We want to rule it out. We shouldn't be doing that. We should be, we should be saying and meaning we can take them on and beat them just as we've taken them on and beaten them for the last 30 years straight. Often in situations, if you think about the remarkable fact of no orders since 1973, we're not just talking about no orders in California. We're talking about the whole country. From the southeast, we're talking about some places which, in ideological terms at least, are quite different from the audience spread out in front of me this evening. And you know, the most important reason for that, in the years since 1973, uh, more than 100 nuclear reactors were canceled, many in an advanced state of construction, not because protesters went after them, but because the cost spiraled out of control. And the utilities that sponsored those plants had to eat about $60 billion, most of which they weren't allowed to pass on to customers. That creates vivid and enduring memories. (laughs) And so somehow you have the interesting challenge in the United States. If you want a nuclear revival, in addition to everything else I've told you, you've got to overcome that rather vivid and eloquent history. And what I would want to say to all of you is that I see no evidence at this point that the nuclear plants can do it. Now, what Peter is telling you is imagine a better nuclear plant. And the difficulty with imagining a better nuclear plant is they will have to, that means the whole, the existing infrastructure is not going to be terribly helpful. We're going to, we're moving to something completely different. The first few are going to cost a lot more. They're going to create some significant financial risk. The utilities that are being asked to take on that risk will be bonding lots of help from the taxpayers of the United States. And this is a, a message I'll keep coming back with you on. The resources of the United States right now, the public resources, are constrained. There is a limited amount available for public subsidy of any resource. And the notion that somehow there's going to be a willingness to make the public investment necessary to create resources of this scale. And remember, this is the fundamental problem of a nuclear plant. Think of how big they are. Think of how long they take to build. Think of how much of a system's capital and operating capacity they take up and they're surrounded by smaller and nimbler competitors, the efficiency options, the renewable options. To bring this home to you, I wanted to close with a hometown example. Uh, For nuclear activists over the last quarter century, the uh, institution you most love to hate, at least if you went back to when I started NRDC in 1979, was the bad old Pacific Gas and Electric Company. The Aaron Brockovich Utility, the people who couldn't shoot straight, the Diablo Canyon blueprint switchers, today, Today, your hometown utility, the Pacific Gas and Electric Company, is the largest investor in energy efficiency in the world. It will shortly be very likely the largest investor in renewable energy and and as a result of the PUC's actions on solar this week, which many of you contributed to, the largest investor in solar. It's running a resource procurement program that's acutely conscious of carbon risk. Uh, And by the way, if you look at the future that PG&E is uh, is now uh, charting, It's not that there's no nuclear in it and there's no coal in it, of course, either. What they're trying to do is to build a future around uh, efficient use of waste heat in uh, natural gas applications. They're trying to add a lot more renewables and they're trying to do more energy efficiency than any other utility in the world has ever done. And I would submit to all of you that that's the model. And what I want to close on is there is someone here in this room who helped start that revolution at PG&E. And it's Carl Weinberg, who's sitting right there, is the former head of R&D. It's his birthday tonight and I would appreciate it if you would all... Let him know that you appreciate it. And so I want you to take away from these remarks not a sense of a relentless attack on a particular technology, but a sense of boundless enthusiasm uh, and optimism about its competitors and the hope that all of us together will watch the most effective international demonstration that those competitors can and will prevail over the long term right here in California. Thank you.
0: Very timely, Ralph. Right on time, Peter. Well done. Uh,
1: we don't need to spend obviously any time on the question of defining the problem. I think we both, as, as you said, you, you accept my definition, and I and, and I, I don't think you change it in any way uh, significantly. Um, I want to explore a few uh, issues that that, that that you put forward. Uh, first of all, the, the the issue of nuclear waste. Okay. You, you uh, characterized the picture in, of, of Yucca Mountain filling to the brim, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Uh, When you think about today's waste problem, let alone future, okay? We, we, we have one today, uh, especially military wastes and so on. Do you have something in mind? Do you have a vision of how we will deal, even if we didn't go any further with nuclear, how we'll deal with the realities that we already face?
2: As a practical matter. What I expect us to do, and I'm not happy about it, but I think it's the only practical option available, will entomb the wastes on the sites where they now are, at the power plants where they now exist, in formidable concrete casks, which you described, actually, in your remarks, which I, is, is the best interim solution I can think of. And, Peter, uh, if, if, if it had been up to me, I wouldn't have launched all of this without a clear sense of what I was going to do with the waste at the well, end. But here we are. <laughs> but here we are. And so I think what we need to do now is concentrate on safer storage on-site, And and also uh, doing a better job of protecting the relatively uh, vulnerable and exposed pools where a lot of the depleted fuel now sits. Then what? Uh, Then it goes into the casks, Peter. And then ultimately, and then what happens after that? My hope, obviously, is that after about a century, here, here I think I share your sense of technological optimism, we have a better sense of what to do with it than simply entombing it in Yucca Mountain. And sadly, I think that's the best we can do at the moment. Uh, That is, my strong preference would be, and I, and I, I think a lifetime of advocacy allows me to say this, my strong preference would be that we had not begun this adventure. But now that we're here, what I think we absolutely must do is take more seriously the risks associated with that waste on site, the potential temptation it provides for people who don't wish us well, and we need to do a better job, and I think this is an urgent national priority for the regulators, of protecting that stuff. Let's move on to one of the other issues which which you you, uh, obviously got into, which was the issue of proliferation.
1: Yeah. Okay. So today there are nuclear fuels moving around the world. There are countries building reactors. There are countries who want to pursue the technology. China is probably the country where they're building the most nuclear power plants at at the moment and expecting to, at least 30 or so. Uh, In light of the fact that there is movement already toward further nuclear power around the world, uh, toward issues associated with proliferation, because not all of those countries are either stable or friendly. Right. Uh, How do we deal with the the current realities of proliferation? Because it's
2: already an issue. There is no question that we ought to do something that I think this administration has conspicuously failed to do, which is to support and strengthen the international safeguards associated with the International Atomic Energy Agency. Uh, And. Yes, absolutely. And and sadly, we've we've, we've kind of developed a national contempt in some quarters for international institutions. This is one place where we desperately need them. I know everyone in this audience was as delighted as you and I were that the agency actually got the Nobel Peace Prize this year. So that's certainly critical. But, Peter, I, I don't take it for granted. I think the question of how much expansion there will be of worldwide nuclear is still very much an open question and depends a lot on what we do. Nuclear power has actually lost market share over the last decade. Uh, in the sense that, yes, some reactors have continued to get built, but the growth in reactors has lagged way behind the growth in electricity use. So at the moment, nuclear power is a declining asset worldwide. There are a handful of centrally driven economies, the anathema of everything Peter Schwartz ever taught me, where it's still alive and relatively well, but it's not, it's not flourishing at the moment. Okay, let's move on to the alternatives. Yeah. Um, you, you, you made the
1: observation that there are thousands of options. Right, Uh, And so we see here in California one of the great success stories, wind. We've seen efficiency. But what about the other renewables? What what do you see for the fate of things like solar electric? Um, Are they going to
2: need the kind of subsidies that we're getting forever? Well, no. I I think no technology is well served by being subsidized forever. And I think the California PUC in the last week did exactly the right thing with its solar program, which is to create a 10-year system of steadily declining subsidies on a known trajectory so the industry either stands on its own at the end or fails and there's constant pressure to reduce costs. And I think that's a good, and the payments are based on performance, not on how much it cost the suffering homeowner to put the system in. So you've got a completely new paradigm for solar in California now, and it's an exciting one, and I hope many in this audience will take advantage of it. But, Peter, I think the the, option, the other option I would encourage you to look at more closely because you are getting very much locked into a paradigm where electricity has to pick up all of the uh, slack on the transportation side. It seems to me at least possible that biofuels can do a lot of this, not the biofuels of our traditional corn-based systems, but a, a, a very significant shift toward what is called cellulosic ethanol where you're using the whole plant, where you can use agricultural wastes, and where you have a chance to add a very interesting new option uh, to a low-carbon future. And what is the economics of cellulosic today? Well, I, I think there, it's very one can say very much the same thing you're saying about imagine a new reactor. We don't know yet, and so what I hope we will do is give it a competitive opportunity and set up and basically set up what we. If you look at what the PUC has done, the Energy Commission, the basic California approach to pushing all of this stuff is you set up a limited amount of subsidy, you make everybody who meets an environmental performance criterion compete for that subsidy, and you basically the winners are those who can deliver value for the least amount of subsidy. That's a good approach. We're not locking in big chunks of money for somebody, regardless of how well they do, which, heaven knows, was the nuclear approach for too long. Uh, we're basically saying it's a performance-based system that rewards those who can deliver the most at the least cost. And that's the way I'd like to see us go and that we are going on both renewables and efficiency in California. So when, when you
1: try to balance all of these things, the risks of climate change, right. the risks of rising energy demand if we don't achieve Uh, huge gains in efficiencies, particularly thinking into account China and India and so on. The risks associated with technological failures and success, we've talked about a variety of technologies, nuclear, wind, solar, cellulosic, biofuels, efficiency, so on. They all have technological risks associated with it. Do you judge the risks of one a priori
2: as greater than the other and therefore we should bias the system? And so here, the most important thing for me is I don't want to pick the winners and losers, and I don't want the government to pick the winners. I want the government to set up a system that basically establishes what the pollution control rules are. And then I want to allow for a fair competition where you can actually let these options, not many of them which are not yet matured, fight it out, Peter. And what I hope we will not do is say, there has to be a nuclear wedge of this size in order to solve the problem. What I hope we will do is to say, this is what it will take to solve the problem. These are the, the, the thing we most urgently need now is we need the Congress of the United States or failing that a significant group of states to establish binding limits on carbon dioxide emissions that are known over time over an extended period and that begin to drive technology toward a low carbon direction at the lowest possible cost. And I hope all of us, all of us could unite in supporting that. The good news, guys, is that the Congress this past summer for the first time a majority of the Senate went on record in support of mandatory limits on carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, and that was the same Senate, remember, that seven years earlier had voted 96 to nothing against ever doing anything like that for all time. That's a significant shift. We should, we should capitalize on it. Okay. Um,
1: you talked about making it a fair competition, but obviously the government determines a variety of things. For example, the criteria, i.e., which pollutants, CO2 right. has been one of the big issues. Uh, government funds R&D. Uh, the, the nuclear budget went to pretty close to zero as the renewables went up.
2: What role for the government in all of this? Well, I do think it's fine to have a government R&D budget, Peter. And actually, I, 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 my gentle disagreement with you is I'm not sure... Nuclear never went anywhere near as close to zero. For, for me, I think it never got below $100 million, and it's now up above $200 million. And, and again, the total nuclear subsidies over the past 50 years, conservative estimate $150 billion. There's an argument to be made that we've done enough R&D on this particular technology. Uh, But I I think it's fine for the government to try to help. There's so little private R&D on energy and so little technology development. If you look at the the combined public and private investment in creating better technology in the United States over the last quarter century, down about 75% when you adjust for inflation, we clearly need to do more of that. Uh, And I would not personally object to seeing more of that go into the possibility, at least, of better reactors, better fuel disposal, safer operation. Since we have 100 reactors right now, we've got communities around them, we've got a stake in making sure that they ramp down uh, in a reasonable uh, and a prudent way. What I don't like to see is the government then, st- I mean, what I think, the, the, the error of the energy bill was to go beyond that and really begin to add a whole new set of subsidies for operating reactors. Uh, again, 50 years into the development of the technology, when there's a real risk, Peter, that, that money won't go to the exciting new technologies you're envisioning but just one more round of the old stuff that, frankly, hasn't been remotely competitive every time there's been a test.
0: I think we're uh, wrapped on that part. Peter, it's time for you to uh, argue Ralph's case.
1: Okay, well, I, I think the the, the brilliance uh, of, you know, it, it's really a daunting experience to debate Ralph Cavanaugh I will say this. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think um, my colleague and friend over here, Uh, put it forward, I think, very eloquently. The problem is is clear. We all see the problem of radically reducing CO2. Um, I don't think that there's any doubt about the need to do that. Uh, The question is, how do you make the choice among the options? Um, And I think uh, Ralph is arguing that the system has been biased toward nuclear and away from uh, other options, with important exceptions, like California, where we've run the experiment of what happens when you mostly begin to get it right, where you begin to make a lot of the choices about efficiency right. You begin to create the room for new options to develop, new technologies to come to market in California as a very good example of having done it right. And that, in fact, I think Ralph has an enormous amount of confidence in the choices that we would make if we were really exposed to the realistic costs and risks and if those were evident in the marketplace and if all the options really bore their full costs, as it were, that the more benign options like solar and wind and efficiency would tend to win far more often, and that if nuclear actually achieved similar levels of performance, why, it could compete and win as well, and Ralph would have no objection uh, to it if it were meeting the same kinds of criteria that, in fact, all the other sources, and including efficiency among them,
2: also had to meet. And- All of that is, except Ralph is profoundly skeptical that that could
0: ever occur. Ah, But that is, is in in fact,
2: very fair and appropriate. Thank you. Okay.
0: Uh, We're getting toward questions. (laughs) I see Kevin has an enormous stack. He'll bring some of the uh, juicy ones up to me shortly. Uh, In the meantime, I'll raise one question, which I noticed a slight... Um, or orthogonality to the comments from both sides so far, you spoke almost entirely, Ralph, about the U.S., U.S. policy, U.S. experience, uh, U.S. competitive system. Peter, you by and large spoke about a world uh, future, really, uh, with a whole lot of China and India in it, uh, with uh, billions of people coming out of poverty and coming into an energy use level, which is more like the American one. Um, So in a sense, I want both of you to respond to that, but I I think I would start with you, Ralph, because um, you mostly deal, National Resources Defense Council mostly deals with U.S. policy and, and so on um if you were brought to china or to india as a consultant what would you be telling them well,
2: actually nrdc deals very strongly also with china has oh, a very strong china energy program and so stuart part of for, I, obviously it's a global problem and mm-hmm. and i try to talk there, there are a they they're about about a quarter of the world's nuclear capacities in the united states I do think that what the United States does matters profoundly right now in terms of helping to shape choices. China, for example, there is a China-California partnership in terms of how to organize the utility sector and how to organize competitive procurement of utility resources. Susan Kennedy uh, of the California PUC went to China to help explain the new California energy efficiency procurement systems, which could be, of course, executed on a far larger scale in China. I still think, therefore, it is terribly important to get it right here uh, as, uh, with, with an eye toward the, the power that that model could have. And I think, I guess, this is something I'd be interested in hearing, Peter's view. I think the, the model of governments driving all of the choices on energy resources is actually one that's declining and likely to go away. That doesn't mean I am in no sense a complete... Uh, I don't have a kind of a blind faith in markets in driving these choices either. I like the hybrid model that California exemplifies in which we have a lot of government involvement in setting limits and creating incentives. Uh, and we have regulated utilities doing a lot of investment under competitive procurement. I think it's a nice hybrid between the kind of the pure market model that many of us remember with no nostalgia at all from the mid-90s in California. And the totally centrally driven command and control government systems of, of Asia and, and France, in, in this sector anyway. And, and so Peter, do you, do you really think that's something that can endure for, uh, for long in the, as, 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 these, as these countries develop, as they become more market-oriented, and as they become more entrepreneurial. Can, can you keep the chains around the system like that?
0: Uh, uh, while Peter is answering that, Kevin, can I have some of those questions?
2: Uh, unfortunately, I think the answer is yes. <laughs> uh,
1: I, 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 I wish it were otherwise. I wish I could say otherwise, but I don't think it's true. Look, I think China's uh, centralized government is going to be around for a very long time. Uh, f- Call it at least another 50 years. Certainly will evolve. It will let go to some extent. But I think you're going to have a communist party. Basically, it's abandoned communism. Call it whatever you want. But it will still run the national show, including things like big energy decisions. Uh, You
2: can see how they're behaving with respect to procuring resources abroad. They still might use competitive Uh, for instance here in california one of our most aggressive investors in efficiency and renewables is the publicly owned sacramento municipal utility district it's not an issue of public versus private ownership it's an issue of whether you're willing to use competitive approaches to resource procurement and and they could come to that
1: but they are unfortunately i think the challenge is so large when you start thinking about how much coal they're already projected to use you'd love to have them get natural gas from russia but the Russians just blew that last week with their behavior with respect to Europe and made themselves unreliable suppliers? Do we want them to do th- more Three Gorges? Well, they already abandoned one, rightly, set of dams that they were going to build. So we're leaving them with damn few options for that next four or 500 million people if we push them away from nuclear power and we don't want them to use all that nasty coal. I think that, you know, I, I don't see how what they're going to do. Uh, To supply the electricity today, I mean, why is pollution going up? Why is oil use going up in China? They're running diesel generators in apartment buildings because the electricity grid doesn't work.
0: You know,
2: well, Stuart, let's let's go on to your audience. Uh,
0: Sam Borgeson is where there in the back uh, raises the question about uranium as a fossil fuel. Given that uranium is pulled out of the ground and exists there in finite quantities, isn't the use of uranium an inherently temporary solution? Do you know how long it will last? Either of you?
1: Go ahead. Well, it depends on on how you use it. So it depends on the fuel cycle. The current U.S. fuel cycle is the least efficient and would run through the fuel if we expanded nuclear power in less than a century. But the, the truth is that we have additional new fuel cycles where we can reprocess the fuel, reuse it, recapture the value, And, by the way, ultimately shift to faster breeder reactors probably a century or more in the future where you have moved from essentially a fuel cycle that consumes fuel to one that actually makes fuel. Now, today that technology is both uneconomic and probably dangerous. So I don't see that for at least a century. You don't need to get to it for a while. So we have time to move from inefficient use to more efficient use to ultimately Being able to produce nuclear fuel. But the truth
2: is, a century or more from now, the physics will have changed so much, who knows what we'll be talking about. But but there is here a crucial and important uh, additional (coughs) issue to raise. The reason the United States has had this so called once through fuel cycle for more than 30 years now, as Peter is well aware, because of profound concerns about the potential availability of weapons material associated with the currently available reprocessing methods. Uh, And the reason that we have declined to do this for this extended period of time. And the reason that so far, at least, the Congress and administration have been unable to overturn the policy uh, is because I think there remains a well-justified and genuine belief that the United States, until the the emergence of the glorious new system that Peter continues to hope for, and I'm not ruling out, but until we can see clear evidence that that's available and practical and commercial, we don't want to go down that road for fear of creating yet a new set of opportunities for uh, nuclear weapons proliferation.
1: Of course, it is the case that almost none of our allies, friends, or even competitors followed us in the desire to not reprocess. Virtually every other major country does already reprocess. But happily,
2: none of them have. It's in every case, I think, an embarrassment, Peter. It's not economic. It's propped up by massive subsidies. It's hard to hold it out as an example of responsible or competitive use of fuel. I think the other point the questioner is right. to. There there are real issues surrounding uranium mining Mm. uh, in terms of what it means in local, uh, enduring local waste problems, worker exposure. We haven't done that very well anywhere in the world. It's an additional, additional, it it belongs on Peter's list of what we've got to do better if this Going to continue. On
1: the other side of the ledger we just saw the cost last week of 13 miners lives in coal mines last year it was 22 in China it was about 15,000 um the 10,000 black lung deaths if 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 13 uh, uh, nuclear power workers had died in a nuclear power plant last week, we'd be shutting down every power plant
2: in the country. Sounds to me like a good reason not to limit our choices to coal and nuclear, uh, which, but of course, <laughs> one major state doesn't. But <laughs> all I'm suggesting yeah. is that there are real costs
1: to, in real lives to real people to not developing the alternative to coal.
0: Okay, here's a question. As near as Kevin can tell, everybody in the room has put at least one question up here. This is amazing. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, this one is from uh, W.O. Do you actually want to wave your hand or stay anonymous? It's out there somewhere. Um, this is for you, Ralph. How long before we're carrying placards that read, no blood for pollution credits? <laughs> How will we enforce global compliance with energy efficiency for alternative fuels?
2: And actually, it's a a provocatively phrased but wholly legitimate question. Uh, The the ultimate hope, and this is where I think Peter's remark about the Stone Age is is well taken. Uh, The ultimate hope, of course, after a century is that we are doing all of these things because they're better not because someone is imposing the heavy hand of government to make us do it, but that the efficiency and renewables options collectively yield a more compelling system than the one that we have now, Uh, that we get, for those of us who believe in energy efficiency, the point is more and better service, not curtailment and sacrifice. The regulatory proposition is quite different, it seems to me, if you look at it that way. And this is why California is so terribly important, because, you see, no one in the world believes that we would impose on ourselves any measure of self-sacrifice for any purpose associated with energy services, if we actually, if we actually are capable of pulling this off together, that for me makes it an all, all the more compelling. Because I don't think, in the end, that this works as a result of some kind of worldwide police state making sure no one is emitting any carbon. I, mean, I, I would just agree with that. I think,
1: by the way, I do think the example of what California does is important. I think some other states have followed. One could hope that someday Washington will learn something from us.
0: A murmuring in the audience. That'll be the day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's a question from Nick's, Nick Fox. Geeg looks like you here. Uh, Do you believe that both of your proposed plans—an expanded nuclear program or an expanded pollution credit regulatory system—requires us to reject the currently popular notion that government is not morally fit to set policy? Does any energy solution require the repudiation of laissez-faire?
1: Uh, 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 of, of laissez-faire. Laissez-faire.
0: There's another question in here is, can America bear to look like France?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, but to the first question, you know, it's, it's hard to find, even among the most profound anti-government skeptics, it's hard to find anyone who doesn't see a role for government in pollution control. I mean, laissez-faire has never worked terrifically well uh, in managing uh, pollution of shared air, water, and land resources. This is a government role that has a pretty distinguished lineage and has endured remarkably well through every kind of administration the U.S. has ever had. It's important to emphasize, therefore, that what I'm calling for is, in my mind, an entirely logical extension of that role. And it's a limited one. It says, basically, that there will be limits on how much can be emitted. Under those limits, obviously, there is a flexible system that allows winners and losers to emerge on the merits. I'm arguing that carbon emissions ought to matter in the economic competition that drives the development and future of the world. And I'm arguing the United States should lead in that effort.
1: I guess I would only add to that. I think, uh, look, the truth is there are wiser and better governments and poorer and worse governments. Uh, and, and, and unfortunately, I think it is very rare for a very big government to be very wise and far-sighted. And that's why I think California is in some ways a more interesting and relevant uh, laboratory, if you will. Uh, It's such a
2: small place.
1: (laughs) Well, but it's meaningful. It's large enough to be meaningful. And where, in fact, the citizens and the government can meet each other in a way that you can't with the U.S. government. I think Britain is doing interesting things. I think Tony Blair is doing interesting things. And, oh, by the way, what is Tony Blair thinking about these days? Reviving nuclear power because he got a wonderful free ride shifting from coal to natural gas, but the natural gas is running out. Margaret Thatcher got the benefit of that, gave him nice Kyoto credits. But he now says, I don't want more coal mines. I don't want to reopen the coal-fired power plants. What am I going to do when I start running out of natural gas? And, oh, by the way, the Russians are the only source I can see coming with that, and I don't like them too much. So he's reconsidering nuclear power. So even some of the wiser governments at the scale of, say, the U.S. and the U.K. are thinking in those ways.
0: This relates to a question from Dave uh, Bayer. It looks like um, the major population states already possess nuclear weapons capability. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why should nuclear power be taken off the table for the about 75 percent of uh, the world population still coming, uh, like China, India, Europe, and the U.S.? These they have the weapons already. They have nukes already. Um, I would add to this that. If nuke is so bad, uh, how come it isn't absolutely shut down? And add to that, in the context that, particularly in Europe, Peter mentioned Britain, also I gather Sweden, Finland, have been doing lately, you know, these nice liberal northern European countries are doing a turnaround on nuclear and are starting to seriously reassess basically not only stopping the the shutting down of their nuclear program, but, but starting to think about expanding it.
2: Well, first, I think it's it's a mixed record. I mean, if you look at Germany, for example, the conservative uh, head of government has just indicated she remains committed to shutting down the rest of the fleet over the next 20 years. Two German reactors are down, the other 17 are scheduled to go down. Uh, The politics are different in different places. I still say, again, nuclear is lagging behind the growth in electricity use. It is steadily losing market share. It is, in my mind, a declining resource. That doesn't mean I haven't tried to take it off the table. Uh, and uh, I have said and mean that I think going forward, there's a continuing competition. We have to win. We have to produce better alternatives. It's not going to be all that tough, in my opinion. And when I talk about proliferation, I'm talking about why if you look forward, and the host has admonished us to look forward 10,000 years, one of the reasons that I wouldn't mourn the loss of a civilian <laughs> nuclear industry worldwide is simply to eliminate the convenient cover that it provides—that would be a plus—and I think there might be broad agreement on that. That doesn't mean it's enough of a—it's enough of a plus to plausibly suggest that everything shut down tomorrow.
1: I think I, I la- last summer I had the privilege of actually raising this question with Hans Blix. For those of you who don't know, Hans Blix was the previous head of the IAEA, uh, and, and the guy who really pissed off George Bush enormously with respect to the uh, so-called weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Uh, I asked Blix, well, how would you manage this issue? And he said, look, in his view, the proliferation issue is almost over. After Iran and North Korea, which I think we're, unfortunately we're going to be unable to stop. I think that genie is out of the bag already. I think uh, the, our good friends, the Pakistanis, made that possible uh, with A.Q. Khan. Uh, but that having been said, there are not many other candidates left in the world who have either the financial wherewithal, the human talent wherewithal, or the motivation to do so, we've had two countries abandon nuclear weapons recently, Libya especially, before that, South Africa, Brazil, Mexico, and so on. I mean, the only guy who's you know, begun to raise the question again is Chavez in Venezuela. Uh, but when we look around the world, the truth is that the real meaningful proliferation danger, unfortunately, is the one that is already at our
2: doorstep, and beyond that, there may not be any others. But, Peter, you just said our only current problems are North Korea, Iran, and Venezuela. Not trivial, and I just say so you can't look, you can't know 10, 25, 50 years in the future. It's still, it would be better if the cover weren't there. I will hold to that without suggesting that it ends the question.
0: question from Garrett Gruner, right down here. Neither speaker projected costs, says this former candidate for governor. <laughs> <laughs> the truth of uh, the matter is that coal is cheap, and, uh, uh, and that with the cost of CO2, what does each speaker believe electricity costs will be 30 years out? Well,
2: it's what we both, I think, were emphasizing was we were, We, we uh, at least I want to, let me not characterize Peter's view as he can do that. I, I'm thinking about a competitive context in which electricity costs absolutely matter. And I am arguing that part of what lets, ought to let the winners and losers emerge on the merits is what is available at the lowest cost with carbon part of the equation uh, i don't think coal, coal coal the fuel is relatively cheap coal the infrastructure and coal the power plants is not cheap at all and right now in the california competitive procurements uh, the resources that i described are cleaning the clock of both coal and nuclear and i expect that to continue to happen in genuinely competitive auctions in terms of what that means for the future cost of electricity it doesn't follow in my mind that it has to come down It has to go up rather dramatically. Uh, Remember that one of the glories, in particular, the California energy efficiency investments, and let's just celebrate. In the last four months, we launched the largest efficiency investment program in the history of the utility industry, $2 billion over the next three years. We did it with an eye toward cutting the electricity service costs and natural gas service costs by about $3 billion. The point of doing it was in part to reduce energy service costs, not to increase them. I don't accept the proposition that the competitive systems that I am advocating and the options that I think are going to continue to emerge and continue to flourish mean we're going to have to pay more for energy services. You could be right, and and, and I hope you're right, but I I have a feeling that we're, the price is going to go up, and I, I think the
1: reason is several fold. Uh, first of all, uh, Garrett's right. Coal it appears to be cheap, but, of course, it doesn't bear the full environmental cost. And so uh, I think it is very likely that we are going to move... That's just the
2: fuel, right, Peter? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: But, we are going to do – well, but now we're going to add cost to the power plant as well. In other words, we're going to add cost to the power plant by capturing the CO2 and then ultimately sequestering it. And that will bring coal to a position close to competitive with nuclear power and with potentially uh, solar as well. So what we're going to find is that those kinds of fuels are going to get more expensive. I think wind will continue to get cheaper. You know, we're going to be able to build more. And wind is already very competitive, and that's why you see in Germany and and in the U.S. lots of wind going in, except where they're being blocked by environmentalists, of course, in places like uh, Massachusetts, New York, and West Virginia because they don't like the sight of them, or in Alameda County because one windmill kills one bird every four months. Uh, And so we want to... uh, And we've shut down our windmills for four months uh, in Alameda because of concern about raptors. Uh, Appropriate concern, but... Everything has its risks and its trade-offs. That's the point. And the cost, therefore, begins to go up at that point when we start building in those things. So you don't run the windmills 12 months a year. You only run them eight months a year. So operating, their, their net cost, in effect, goes up. So all of these things will see, I think, pressure on cost eventually. Efficiency, I think, goes the other way. That I agree with you. That will continue to get cheaper and cheaper in a great variety of ways.
0: Peter, a couple of questions for you, one from uh, Wendy Maria Phelps. Peter, do you believe that citizens throughout the world should have the democratic, democratic opportunity to decide if they want nuclear power plants and or wastes in their community? Absolutely. Okay. I don't, I don't
1: have any doubt about that. I, I think that's a fundamental notion of democracy. I don't, I don't think there's any doubt about that.
0: And then Stephen Fowler asks, uh, could Peter expand on his claim that the Earth could only support two billion people mm-hmm. under the scenario where the world atmosphere temperature increases by 5%, I think. No, Uh, that that is what I said. What I said was
1: that if the Earth returns to its normal climate, which is the result of a radical shift uh, and an end of the interglacial where the world will be much colder and more volatile, the ability to essentially produce enough food and have enough water available for 8 billion people is what is the issue. We saw, for example, uh, 8,200 years ago a brief period where the climate of the world went down about five degrees, stayed down for a century, and came back up. And what you saw throughout the whole northern hemisphere was a world that was much drier, much colder, much windier for roughly a century. Whole civilizations disappeared in that interregnum of a broken climate. Uh, this has happened a number of times in history where we've seen these kinds of sudden shifts in the climate, and they produced catastrophic change in our ability to supply food and water to the population. So that's what the real issue here is, that if we return to that world of colder and more volatile, it, the the mechanism of transmission of the consequences are through the water and the food system.
0: So say a little more. I'm mean, carrying capacity dropping for humans of one-third of what it is now. How does that, how's that actually work out?
1: Well, what, what happens is that the northern climates, basically north of about 20, 25 degrees, so think well south of here. We're about 35, so think... Southern California, Mexico, that sort of, everything north of that becomes progressively difficult to sustain agriculture. And that's where we grow most of our food in terms of uh, uh, food and water.
0: Do you buy that, by the way?
2: Uh, This is for me one more. I don't know for sure, but it's one more reason why I don't want to run the experiment one hour longer than is absolutely necessary.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of one hour longer, uh, one of the questions here is lag times. Uh, you one of the attractions of efficiency is you can do start doing it right now, yeah. and the costs are pretty low every time you lower the increments. Uh, one of the problems with nuclear is that there's enormous lag times. Uh, there are huge capital expenses. Typically, uh, Alexander Rose was reminding me before this evening of decades of permissions and then of building and then more time before it finally comes online. Are those lag times a serious issue here?
1: Absolutely. Uh, There there are several lags that are important. One is just the decision in construction time, though I think we can radically reduce that. If we do what they do in France, where it's about four or five years instead of 12 years, the cost of nuclear falls dramatically. So we can deal with that. But I'm, I'm less concerned with those lags than I am with the fact that we've got built into our system already an enormous amount of momentum of CO2 production. Even if we went all out to shift cars, all out to shift power plants and coal and so on, there are decades yet still of CO2 production that will grow before we begin to turn it down. So I think it's that lag which I'm more concerned about. It's why I want to make the shift away from CO2-intensive fuels
2: as fast as possible because the lag is so large in the existing system. I agree with his last point, Stuart. Now, with the first, the fact is that the lead times and scale of resources matters enormously in terms of their relative competitiveness. And so far this has been a real Achilles heel of nuclear. It is just too big, too cumbersome, it takes too long, given the multitude of nimbler Competitors. I I would just say uh, on the wind being one of the Nimbler competitors, I I don't want to let the last comment go wholly unanswered. Uh, Peter is right that uh, some in the environmental community have raised concerns about the possible damage to birds and bats associated with uh, wind development, particularly in the Altamont Pass, which has the highest concentration of wind machines in, in North America and which was cited more than 20 years ago. Having just spent two days with those advocates, meeting directly with the renewable energy community, I came away with it with a clear sense that the effort of those, and there are many in this room who, for example, are members of local Audubon chapters, is not to shut down wind resources, but to make sure we know more about the ways that they could potentially interfere with bird and bat migrations and do something responsible in the siting and the design of the machines to minimize the harm. And I think that's a reasonable thing to do, and I predict it will not, in the end, materially affect the deployment and and the uh, contribution of wind power.
0: Uh, Well, Peter, you mentioned that there's a whole lot more carbon loading going on as we speak, and many of these atmospheric cycles are already in progress. Um, Toby Sanderson has a question. If the Earth's climate is so inherently unstable and we are currently going through a period of relative stability, what effect can we have on climate if it will naturally descend into a chaotic state anyway? I would add to this, uh, a couple of weeks ago we had – Freeman Dyson on the stage, and uh, he said right out loud he thought the models about uh, global warming were uh, interesting but only models, and the actual role of, uh, of what humans are doing on that uh, is to him still questionable. He thinks warming is absolutely going on. And I guess the question here is, is climate so large that whatever we do, it's going to go its own way, and it could be pretty strange in any case.
1: That's certainly possible. Look, it it is a system that is extremely complex. My background is fluid mechanics. I'm actually a rocket scientist. I get to say that. Uh, And fluid mechanics is my specialty. And this is a turbulent, complex fluid. And it is hard to predict. In fact, I built some of the first global climate models in the 1970s when I was at SRI. Did the first global climate assessment for the U.S. government when the issue was global cooling because the world had cooled from 1960 to 75, uh, and we were all worried about another little ice age. So the models are genuinely questionable. However, uh, we do have a fair amount of data on, A, what the long-term dynamics are, and what some of the important physical dynamics associated with those are. For example, the buildup of greenhouse gases. And uh, uh, Ralph said it well. We're at levels of greenhouse gases that have simply never been experienced before. Um, and particularly CO2, and no, we cannot be certain that, A, we are causing it, but the odds are that we are contributing to it substantially because of the level of CO2 and a few other greenhouse gases, and that the risk here is that if you put that much, gas, uh, much CO2 in the atmosphere, it absorbs enough energy that it triggers a change that might otherwise take thousands of years, might play out in decades. Uh, and it 's as you put more energy into the atmosphere, it becomes more volatile. It is able to has more excursions, much greater dynamics, more extreme storms, more extreme weather, and so on and So
2: it is those dynamics that build up and produce the kind of flip and change of state that we are worried about and, and For those of us who have not been schooled in fluid mechanics, and I have to acknowledge it didn 't figure prominently in the curriculum of the Yale Law School. Uh, I still think it's legitimate to say this. After having heard Peter describe the nature of what's happening to the atmosphere and the potential consequences, if you thought about this as an experiment you were being asked to authorize collectively uh, in your names, is there any reason why you would vote to do this as a kind of an interesting excursion in uh, global fluid dynamics? And if you can't see a reason to take these risks, isn't a plausible conclusion that we ought to see if it's possible to stop the experiment at reasonable cost. And I think, really, that's what this entire discussion is about.
0: Um, The fusion question uh, comes from Tracy Swedlow, it looks like, something like that. Are you aware of any real practical research being done to develop fusion technology? Do you believe it is a viable possibility? Start with Peter.
1: Well, a lot of money going into fusion, but (laughs) is it practical is another question. Uh, you know, the, the famous saying about fusion, which unfortunately is true, is that 30 years ago, fusion was 40 years off, and today, fusion is 40 years off. Um, and probably 40 years from now, fusion will be 40 years off. The physics of this is really hard, and I think we basically probably got it wrong. Uh, I don't think we're going to put a little bo- magnetically bottled hunk of the sun in a reactor uh, and produce power with it. Uh, that's been most of the current thrust. There's a huge new project underway in Europe that we're contributing to, and, so, and I,
2: I think it's basically an employment process for physicists. <laughs> And, and I guess I'm, I'm somewhat more humble in this and on this and a whole host of it, it, what I've learned in this area is there it, every technology has at, at least one absolutely convinced theologian who will at any public gathering arise and declaim it as the final solution. And, and look, I'm prepared to acknowledge that all of these things might play a role. I think in the end it will be a portfolio that gets us through, not a single option. I think we would be unwise to rule anything out definitively now and equally unwise to assume that somehow any of these options is sufficiently compelling, particularly the ones that are several decades out, so there should be a crash government program to develop it. And my concern about nuclear right now is there does appear to be, at least the beginnings of a movement among some of our political leadership, to try to do something like that. Fortunately, they don't have enough money, and so I think it's unlikely that they'll pull it off, and there will be all these distractions like we could do fusion, Uh, and you'll end up with a relatively well-diversified R&D program, and you do hope a few good things come out of it.
0: Let me just ask both of you to kind of uh, – and this is, we're heading toward wrap-up here – catalog what looks to you like promising emerging technologies. This is a group that's been living with Moore's Law for most of their adult lives, and uh, you know, we've had good reason to expect breakthroughs in technology. You say that physics is going to keep on changing. Um, you see the renewables getting more and more uh, efficient. Uh, Carbon sequestration is on the table, but it's kind of a hand wave in many respects so far. So I'd love to get a kind of a a, a shopper's guide to basically kinds of technology you would like to see uh, really go forward. And this might be R&D from the government. It might be a great opportunity in the private sector. Uh, Some of them might be things which just completely change the game which it sounds like we would all like because as much as you like nukes, it's not because you like nukes. It's because you dislike a lot of the other things going on. You know, what could blow nukes off the table for you? Uh, what could really uh, augment uh, conservation and renewables for you, Ralph? So what's, what's on your mind as things to pursue?
1: Well, look, if, if you could get solar much more efficient than it is and much cheaper, Uh, I mean, that would be an enormous advantage. In other words, if you can capture a much greater fraction of the incident solar radiation uh, and do it cheaply, that would be a really, really good thing. Energy storage. Uh, For making renewables work, energy storage is a very important technology. We don't have many good ways today. Batteries, uh, you know, you can compress air, you can pump water. There's a variety of things you can do, but all of those have problems. If you have much better storage, you have many more options for use of renewables. Uh, the grid. If you have a grid that is more sophisticated that enables you to dispatch renewables, use renewables in sophisticated ways and distributed ways, that would be a big advantage. I think part of the issue here is that there are many things that have to happen for all of that to work well. <clears throat> to be able to make a big substitution for all of the coal and the nuclear that we have today. The baseload electricity that is there all the time, that runs all the time, requires a kind of systemic change that requires a number of these technologies to integrate in a way that they don't yet today. And I think that integration process is another whole level of technology, not just simply the physical technologies themselves, to be able to create a kind of grid that sustains uh, 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 the, the system 24 hours a day, everywhere that it needs to be.
0: Is that a technical issue or a political issue? Some of
1: both. There are technical issues in how you manage and operate the grid, and then there are political issues in in
2: who who runs it under what circumstances. And so, Stuart, let me identify a couple of additional things that might work even more quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we should do a lot more with research and development in building and vehicle efficiency. Mm. The national budget for building efficiency is about $70 million, which isn't enough to build one building. Uh, that strikes me as a tragic misallocation of resources. Uh, I also mentioned the possibility of a biofuels breakthrough in cellulosic ethanol made from plant wastes rather than from corn. Uh, Peters and my mutual friend Vinod Kosla believes very strongly that if we can just get a proliferation of flexible fuel vehicles, uh, so the Californians have the option of filling up with pure ethanol in addition to gasoline, as Brazilians now do, that it could make a profound difference. And if you, those of you who follow events in Brazil will see that there's a very interesting experiment going on there. I'll close with one that will surprise you. I think on the coal side, we we need to mention the fact that there is at least beginning to emerge some signs of a possible revolution in the way that coal is used. Uh, and this is processes that don't burn it, but in effect refine a gas out of it and then have a pure stream of carbon dioxide that you could pump underground much more readily and cheaply than is possible now that becomes relevant if you look at the size of the coal resources in india and china and stewart has admonished me to think about them the fact is that if all the coal plants now proposed to get built in the next 25 years are in fact built and they burn coal in conventional ways they'll emit more carbon dioxide over their lifetime the next 25 years worth of coal plants worldwide than all of the carbon dioxide emissions in the recorded history of humanity. And if that happens, we can't suspend the global climate experiment. So it seems to me we have an interest in testing that proposition, whether there's a new way to use coal that makes it dramatically easier and cheaper to dispose responsibly of the wastes. Uh, And that ought to be on the table at least as much, in my view, as the nuclear option should be on the table.
1: I I agree with that very strongly. Uh, You know, I I think the numbers you put forward, I I think, are are really quite striking. Think about this. If every Chinese today used energy the way the average American uses energy, that would equal all of world energy demand. In other words, if they got to the same level as us, we'd have to double the world energy production.
2: Happily, they have tighter fuel economy standards already.
0: Let's uh, play another future game here. Um, Peter's already said there's a whole bunch of stuff going on with the climate, and you seem to agree with that. The experiment, we, we can't... Unring that bell. The experiment's already in progress. Uh, we climate. We stop it. We, we can slow it. <laughs> and there are lags. Uh, 20 years on, climate continues to get weirder. Uh, more and bigger hurricanes. Uh, rising levels, not only in the Maldives and Bangladesh, but right here in San Francisco Bay. Weirder weather, uh, species dying hither and yon. They go up to the top of the mountain because it's uh, changing and then there's no more mountain and they, what, you know, this is already happening in a large degree. Okay, it gets worse and worse and worse. Several administrations have gone by in the U.S., in the U.N. The U.N. has turned over a bunch of people. There have been wars and non wars various places in the world. The Chinese economy has done whatever it's going to do. The Indian economy has done what it's ever going to do. And climate, is the big event for everybody. Then how do these questions play out for both of you?
2: Well, it's, it, in, in that world, Stuart, for me, climate achieves a political salience that it is only starting to have now. But what I think that what I would expect then is that it will there will be a political imperative to have effective national limits on emissions of greenhouse gases. There will be enormous, it's already starting to build, but it will only be growing. Every hurricane season, the entire American population will be reminded that hurricanes are gigantic heat engines Mm -hmm. and that that is an additional reason to care passionately about these issues. And and what I hope it will do, therefore, and this is the positive side of it, is this is all driving innovation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is the collective hope that Peter and I have. We have somewhat different views of where that will go. If it goes where I hope it will, I think it will ultimately leave us in a better place. If, if, if those kinds of concerns are harnessed that this is part of what good leadership is going to be all about, it will take, and we may dare to hope some of it is here in this audience, some people who are prepared to step up and lead on that rather than just wring their hands and complain about it or assign it to sunspots or random natural variations that none of us can... I think that the, the terrible temptation will be to somehow suggest that there's nothing we can do and that we have no culpability. And there, I think, I mean, you gave us a a, a rare reason to suspect Freeman Dyson of human human culpability a moment Mm -hmm. ago. I think the overwhelming scientific consensus is different Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that uh, that it will be increasingly difficult for responsible politicians to take that view.
1: You know, uh, look, I think we can get there, but we've already seen some of this play out, Stuart, and we, we can see it historically when after the first uh, oil crisis, second oil crisis uh, in 1979-80, uh, the United States uh, passed for the first time mileage standards, the CAFE standards. And and Ralph will remember that originally it was intended that after about five years, six years, after it was played out, it was supposed to go up again. The original legislation said it was going to be 27 and a half, and then in 1987 at the instigation of the president, it was supposed to go on up to 35 if we were on our right trajectory. Ronald Reagan canceled that, did not implement the 35. If... We had implemented the 35-mile-per-gallon standard. We'd have 2 million barrels a day of oil imports today, and we wouldn't care very much about Venezuela or Saudi Arabia or a number of other places, and our emissions would be much, much lower. And, oh, by the way, GM and Ford might be thriving because, of course, Toyota took that challenge seriously, and GM went from a market share of 50% to 25%, and Ford from 30% to 14%, while Toyota tripled its market share selling green cars to Californians. Um, And so I think there are, if we get these choices right, you don't get to that place. Now, the interesting and weird thing that, I'll throw one wrinkle into this whole thing, I think you could even see, as as painful as this to me, to say the Bush administration changed their position on climate change. (laughs) (laughs) Bring us back in a year, Stuart. As as my family knows, we were on vacation recently. Each morning, we were in a remote location. I'd wake up and check the New York Times facts. Is Dick Cheney still alive? But having said that, I keep hoping. uh, Having said that,
0: This is going out over the radio, Peter. I understand. I understand. Uh, There is,
1: I I think, what we see here is a real failure that I think they've actually begun to recognize. The world has aligned against them. The scientific community has aligned against them. Even their own scientists have aligned. There's only two people in America who don't believe in climate change, and it's George Bush and Dick Cheney. Uh, You know, the Department of Defense believes it. The Department of Energy believes it. EPA believes it. You know, there's a small cabal of two guys who don't. Um, And and I think... I think there's a question about Karl Rove. um, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'll I'll put Karl in the envelope, uh, in, in the bubble. But having said that, my point is that even in the administration, you're beginning to see the forces beginning to shift. And the politics of this could begin to change significantly, even before... Imagine what the... Republicans do to the Democrats if they take away the environmental issue.
2: And Peter, what will drive that, and there are some in this room who are trying to make it happen, I think it's actually the business community yeah, is changing exactly. and leading on this. And I think there are in, in this room I know are, for instance, people from the Silicon Valley Leadership Group who have been, for Silicon Valley, uh, giving the strongest possible constructive example of the potential ways that our technology leadership could Generate solutions and a, and a remarkable lack of fear in that community Absolutely. about the potential of responsible regulation. And I do think that's going to get through to even the most cloistered sections of the environment. I hope that the administration, sometime soon. Yeah.
0: Uh, we put 10,000 years in the title, and we should probably end in that uh, time frame. Um, 10,000 years probably came because it actually came from Peter. I'll give you the history of this 10,000 year story. Um, The Long Now Foundation was named by Brian Eno, and we were trying to decide how long is the now that we're interested in. And uh, Schwartz came up with, how about everything since uh, basically agriculture? When towns first began, civilization's story got going. That was about 10,000 years ago. So we'll take the last 10,000 years, the next 10,000 years, that's the Long Now. One of the reasons a number of us went to uh, visit at Yucca Mountain is uh, its time frame is 10,000 years. It was set by Congress back in the 1950s as the amount of time that they were supposed to be responsible for uh, the nuclear waste there. It's uh, very bizarre things happening. We could talk about that, but that's probably another evening. What are we talking about? Climate in 10,000 years, uh, nuclear power in the time frame of 10,000 years, What does that perspective do to both of your positions?
1: You know, look, there's no doubt that the Earth's climate will be different 10,000 years from now than it is today. There's no period in human history of stability of 10,000 years. That has never happened. Um, I mean, of 20,000 years. So it's going to change. It's going to change. There will be change in the climate. Um, The question is, do we have in that period of time, have we gotten smart enough to both be participants in that process as well as to learn how to live with that process. Uh, Do we have an understanding of ecosystems, of biology? Do we have technological resources? Uh, And and the truth of the matter is uh, I think there's no doubt of that. Um, I think we are going through a a transition that is probably several centuries, um, like it or not, where we have moved from a world where nature controlled us to where we understand and, frankly, control nature in ways that we simply have never had before. And so before the end of this millennium, I think our relationship to the natural environment, our relationship to the climate will change fundamentally. Um, And so that by 10,000 years from now, we will be active participants in co-creating in a kind of
2: positive sense uh, what the climate is. And I will make two observations on this. Um, One is that a federal court recently invalidated the 10,000-year rule for nuclear waste on the ground that it wasn't a sufficiently long period. Uh, to deal with the uh, waste given its toxic characteristics, underscoring further however you feel about the merits of the decision. Stuart thinks perfectly dreadful. It, it does underscore the political challenge of part of the topic uh, this evening. But look, the main thing I would want to emphasize, Stuart, is on this issue, and I think everyone in this room is aware of this, but I want to underscore it in closing, we don't have 10,000 years. We probably don't have 10. If, if we do not begin to move decisively to suspend or at least slow the global climate experiment, Uh, in the years immediately ahead, uh, then my concern is that 10,000 years out, the experiment has seen its way very possibly through to some very unpleasant conclusions that we could have done something about. Uh, if we had been more effective in our efforts over the next ten years. Let's not allow ourselves to uh, have that regret, however far out Stuart allows us to go, Uh, and let's stay focused at least for part. I'm delighted to have a forum that occasionally looks out 10,000 years, but I don't want you to have the luxury of thinking you've got anything like that long to get serious about this problem.
0: (laughs) And with that, thank you for coming. Thank you both.